Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast, where three brothers from three different generations talk about their one shared passion, music. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. Today, we're talking about the life and legacy of the dead Kennedys. You can now listen to episodes on the BrotherPod app, which also gives you access to additional new music, music news, clips, and content that we curate for each episode. You can also interact with us directly at the TalkBack feature, ask us questions, make suggestions, and voice your own opinions. Just search BrotherPod in the App Store to download on your mobile device. As always, you can learn more about the pod at brothertopod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now, let's go back in time 40 years and talk about dead Kennedys. Podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis. I'm here with my brother, Christian Lewis, and today we are revisiting the life and legacy of Dead Kennedys, uh, one of my all-time faves, and one I feel like is kind of uh, fading into the into the woodwork as we as we get further and further away from their uh, heyday, which was now 40 years ago. So, um, what what like given. Uh, that you were born in 88, uh, a few years after they broke up. What, you know, what was their sort of uh, impact or what, how did you find them? And what did you think of them when you found them, uh, back when you found them? Well, um, I discovered them in high school. Like I think a lot of people probably did. Um, they were sort of included in the, uh, you know, canonical starter um, kit. Yeah, history of punk. Sort of, uh, this is one of the albums you've got to listen to if you want to pretend like you know anything about anything. Um, and you know, I think it's it was up there with. Um, wh- whereas I think sort of the the second tier of that actually included the the sort of more local and closer to my heart favorites of things like Minor Threat, um, Bad Brains, and and um, you know, to a certain extent, I think. Black Flag was sort of just just on the fence between Tier 1 and Tier 2. Um, Fresh Fruits for Rotting Vegetables in particular, uh, DK's 1980 album, was sort of up there with, um, you know, Sex Pistols, Clash, like the, the truly, you know, the, the great uh, one-off, um, you know, home run albums of, of all time. Um, and I, I think you know, was it recognized sort of at the time that that was uh, that that was happening, or, or did that take a few years to, to catch on? I, I think it was it was weird. I, I you know, I mean, I I don't pretend to have known who they were outside of the sort of uh, um, you know sort of circus sideshow um, uh, of the of you know the early '80s. Given that, and and I come, I say that because I remember them more from news footage from when we lived in San Francisco, in the East Bay in the early '80s when Jello Biafra ran for mayor. Um, so I, you know, they sort of they had that quality. Um, given that I was uh, nine when when Jello ran for mayor, of scaring me, uh, which meant they intrigued me, but I didn't probably hear them or fall in love with them for several years later. Um, I probably had, it was one of those bands where I probably had a t-shirt before I had an album. Um, the, the logo was iconic. The, 
iconography around them. Um, even, you know, even, even fresh fruit wasn't as much of a, um, you know, wasn't as known to me as the iconography around, uh, Nazi punks fuck off or, um, you know, some of the other, uh, t-shirts that were, you know, in vogue. It was one, one of those bands, you know, I, I think I've mentioned before, like the misfits, uh, the Ramones and black flag are now where the logo was far more, um, uh, recognizable than the music because they didn't have a whole lot of outlets that were playing their stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. Um, they, you know, and, and worth keeping in mind, of course, also that you were twelve when they came out, so it's not like you were uh, you were quite making it to shows yet um, in that sort of first run that they were doing across the the East Coast, right? Uh, Ten, but yeah, the uh, um, I was not, I wasn't. Uh, but like I said, I you know being in the Bay Area, you knew of them through the sort of antics of Jello Biafra, and Jello Biafra was not your typical punk rock um, guy. He yep. wasn't. Uh, he was very atypical, actually. And you know that I later found out through his music. But as a persona, he was a very strange guy. He, the, the thing that was intriguing about him is that you know he was a uh, he was a clowny kind of a pers- personality who was obviously very intelligent and very intellectual. And that, on its own, was really intriguing back then because anybody who identified as a punk or punk rocker back in those days was kind of thought of as a yob, you know, a sort of a brute. And, you know, here's this guy who sounds like he'd be much more at home in the, you know, in the Caltech library than he would be, um, you know, beating anybody up. So in some respects, it sort of was the uh, was the quirkiness, perhaps, of um, of the you know of the backdrop and the scene that they came out of um, that made him a sort of more cerebral character, perhaps than um, than punks in more uh, let's say um, you know traditional contexts were. Uh, were able to be. Um, there was punks a little bit more experimentation, I think. And, punk, and punks as they were depicted in the press, though, too. And, um, you know, that that is not, you know, I wasn't, you know, we're not talking about, like, cool zine-oriented DIY, you know, rock press. We're talking about, you know, NBC no, Nightly the York, News. The New York and, Times coverage of the Pistols' first trip across America. Yeah, but even, um, even, even less in touch would be the sort of NBC Nightly News if there was a, a riot or, you know, you know, some sort of local newscast where they're like, punks, they're taking over Orange County, you know, that kind of thing. Um, It's, it was, it was a, so their their depiction of, of, you know, the scary, ogre boogeyman version of this was, was kind of countered by this guy who was more of a theater geek than he, he seemed like a punk. Well, so to to take a step back for a second, I, I think you know it's it's worth sort of uh, recapping the formation of the band and, and how they really came together. And I guess it was it was really all centered around this uh, this sort of iconic, legendary club, the Mabuhe, um, which uh, was run by promoter Dirk Dirksen, um, who was sort of the first guy to to give them a show, um, and uh, Klaus. Uh, fluoride, I believe. Um, yes, of the fluorides of, of the, uh, the fluorides <laughs> of, of Northern California, of, of Marin County, perhaps. Um, uh, Klaus went to Mabuhay with his uh, with his friends. Um, actually, as he put it, to sort of make fun of punks, um, they sort of come into the city, uh, and he responded to an ad in the paper later by a guy named East Bay Ray, who was ultimately the the guitarist um, for the group. Uh, I thought, you know sort of digging back through the, the archives a little bit, I, I really did appreciate um, 
Dirk Dirksen's response to uh, to the question, what made you put them on stage, which was, well, a general lack of taste, suicidal tendencies, the fact that I was suffering from depression at the time, and dumb luck. Yeah. I mean, that, <laughs> and that's, he, a, that's he really, a winning formula to, to, to get a, to, to yeah, get the a winning. The Mabuve, you know, crowd was sort of, you know, like I've always said about the late 70s L.A., punk crowd before it became a sort of def- more defined look and, and sound, um, you know, was a sort of equal opportunity uh, outcast fest. And, um, you know, they the bands were, were you know, there were some, uh, you know, pretty clever folks hanging around and some, you know, some degenerates and, you know, some drug addicts and such. But it was sort of a mixed bag of everybody getting together in a, in a spirit of things. So the I think the spirit of the of the movement was much more codifying than the look or the sound. Um, you know, once once punk got into sort of Orange County, which is you know the 1981 kind of thing, when it got super aggressive and super male dominated, it changed. And I think in the you know in San Francisco, you know that that sort of ethos that you know, Austin has adopted now that stay weird ethos, uh, was more pervasive. It was more, you know, it was a more mixed sort of, uh, gay straight, uh, scene. It was more male, female, um, than punk ultimately became. And also, you know, if you think about it, there weren't a lot of bands that emerged from San Francisco. It's really the dead Kennedys right. that were the big one, you know, at least until that, that next generation where you have, um, the, the sort of the cooperative, uh, club out in Berkeley and then an entirely different oh, yeah. generation of um, of you know Green Day and Op Ivy and the but, but I would I would but I mean com- that's that's a decade later so it I really would compare isn't. that to and I had sort of a there was a creep but there was I would compare the the change changing of the guard from the Mabuhe to um, you know uh, Gilmore Street uh, as the same as the you know the sort of uh, school switch from you know X and and the plugs to you know Black Flag and Circle Jerks and and uh, TSOL. It's sort of you know it's when it migrated to the suburbs that uh, I got more male and more. Uh, yeah, more yeah, more um, less you know, less arty, less college kid, less exactly. Less yeah, less um, intellectual, a bit, more aggressive, a little bit angrier, a little bit younger, probably. Um, yes. Yeah. No. And um, so, so in 1979, I guess was was when they uh, they claimed, you know, um, according to their records, sort of that the, the bands had fully fully congealed um, as a as a unit that would be the touring lineup for the next few years. Um, and with that, they they released, I guess, their their first single, which was California Uberales, which was sort of a think about that. Know, That's yeah. insane. Well, it was also. I mean, is there anything more punk rock ultimately than um, you know? Everybody was sort of like taking a sigh of relief in San Francisco. Ronald Reagan's finally out of office. We have a Democrat in. Um, uh, I believe he was a Democrat at the time. I know he's been oh, a governor yeah. under both parties. Um, he was, I mean, he was seen as like the ultimate the sa- fucking hippy-dippy moon bat. Well, the savior, right. And of course, then they release a song with re-envisioned Nazi propaganda <laughs> uh, worshipping Jerry Brown <laughs> because he's going to impose his fascist liberal agenda on you. I realize that's kind of a tautology, but um, his, his fascist agenda in which he makes you uh, do yoga in the streets and um, eat granola. And totally. it's like... You know, it just—it's just so off the wall, and it like—and it does exactly what what I think we talk a lot about the, the sort of the best punk rock does, which is find the thing that you are most secure in, and just 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 get in there and just stick a you know 
thumb and a tie, <laughs> yeah. um, and whatever it is that you're, you're um, you know, that you are a little bit too comfortable to uh, to want to parody or to want to submit to satire and that sort of thing. And, and we can talk about this more later when we dig into the album. Um, but well, I, but just, I would say that's, I would a, that's an impressive com- shot over the bow. Yeah, I would make. I would. I, first of all, my my uh, my initial um, holy crap about California Borealis is just that the, the sort of sophistication of the song and the length and weirdness of the song as a as a punk rock song was just you know yes. bizarro. Second of all, like his fellow Coloradans, um, are they Coloradoans? Uh, uh, you know, Trey and Matt from South Park, he was, uh, you know, Jello by Afro was very inclined to sort of, um, poke, you know, poke at the, uh, at the puff chest rather than, you know, the, the obvious enemy that everybody was, uh, poking at, you know, the sort of, he, he, you know, he was so done with Republicans that they did, they didn't even bear mentioning he was, but what he was, was, you know, he was somebody who liked to poke fun at, at, at those who were had a bloated sense of self-importance, and that yes. to them was Jerry Brown. Yes, and I think that's a very good point, which is that um, you know, visionaries in a lot of cases, I think, um, you know, in sort of social commentary and and criticism, um, are yet one step further down the road. You know, it, it really isn't. Um, Really hating Ronald Reagan, like that's what you know. That's what you're going to yeah. make a punk album about. Congratulations! It's, um, it's hating hypocrisy like, that is that you know, and, and self importance right. that is really the turnoff. Yes, and I think that that's uh, and and staying true to form. I think is was um, you know a, a measure, a quick, a, an early measure at least of of their sort of authenticity, which I think um, was uh, was really sort of the the defining feature of um, of this first album. I think. From there, though, they, they in 1979, is, is that early, which, I mean, actually kind of surprised me, I, I um, made their first East Coast run uh, and really, I think, had some trouble with it. Um, they described playing to six people uh, in New York and, and sort of, I, I guess, I gather, uh, word of mouth spread a little bit by the time they got to Boston five or six, it turned into 50 or 60, um, which, you know, I think is, is some indicator of, like, the fact that Punk networks were actually re- reasonably connected at this point. Um, no, they, was, they were. Uh, they were. I mean, full. This was the. This was the beginning. This was really the. You know, if you think back to it, the, there's not a whole lot that predates this in terms of national touring acts that are punk. So you know, I mean, the, even the fact that they said they bought their plane tickets uh, is pretty funny because um, you know that hop in the van ethos hadn't even started yet. Um, that whole idea of, you know, I mean, and, and you know, I think that is, uh, you know, very much, um, you know, Henry Rollins and the Black Flag and that era and crowd that were able to chart a course across the country. And, and I was going to say, there, there, were no places, there were no places to play between San Francisco and New York, <laughs> so there's not really any point in running a van. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, it just it just hasn't materialized yet. Um so, uh, so this this show at the Rat, I gather, was um, was was pretty exciting, uh, and really sort of generated a little bit of buzz about them. Um, but you know, I think that that one of the fascinating things that I wanted to talk to you about, just because, um, uh, it, it's it's sort of a 
a perfect um, analogy, as you'll see, uh, to to the present, but um, was the fact that they kind of picked up steam, actually, through a mayoral run. Um, when Jella Biafra and, and the crew went back to, to San Francisco, um, he ran for mayor in 1980. Uh, and, you know, I, I think um, there's... Uh, th- this was sort of a... a really momentous sort of occasion for the band anyway because it, it just got his name out there and it meant that the local news was talking about him. Yeah, national news was talking about him. It was bizarre. It was like, I mean, I, I can't tell you the national news was talking about him a lot, but it was a it was a lark, but he was, a, you know, enough of an on-camera presence and enough of a charismatic guy that, you know, they would throw a mic in his face, expect him to, you know, sound like a boob, and he came off like he was a, you know history professor from across the bay and uh you know he he was a you know he was a really you know he was an off he was a uh um he was a you know he was a presence that put people off balance he was they weren't expecting this and then you know expecting to actually have to like debate the guy and beat him in an argument you know it was sort of um it was as the news anchor says in in um a, a great documentary on uh Dead Kennedys that we can we can um, blast out over social media was you know this is a, a sort of a local San Francisco news anchor who says the candidate who won't provide his real name for the ballot would probably be written off except he's too smart Eric you know, Boucher it, 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 yeah but this is um, you got to remember too that I mean it, and you can't remember so it, it's a funny thing to say but um, it, you know ha- being having lived you know in it real time the, that period was so. Frightening in San Francisco. It was, um, you know, I mean, this is pre-AIDS, uh, so not that version of frightening. But you had Jonestown had just happened, which had emanated in San Francisco. Um, obviously, ended up in Guyana in South America. Um, Moscone, the San Francisco of Central America. <laughs> yeah, um, Moscone and and uh, awesome. Milk had just been assassinated um, by a fellow city councilor. Um, White, the the counselor who who Dan White who who killed them was uh, all but acquitted on something called the Twinkie defense. Um, you know, it was a very it felt very chaotic. Um, it's funny, which, it, go ahead. which was itself a sort of. Uh, I mean, it, this this was obviously a, a hate crime, right? Oh yeah, or, yeah. Dan White I mean, was it, a, and he a, sort of got let off on account of the fact that Harvey Milk was gay, and it just and that obviously was you know. Um, a pretty horrific event. He murdered the mayor. I mean, it was and his that's why there was a runoff. I mean, that's that's the you know that's the platform that you're that this is uh, you know existing on. It's it's it was a really scary time. There's a lot of you know all that like David Fincher serial killer shit is born of of real dread from people who grew up in that area in that time. Well, it's it's funny that you um, you highlight how uh, how different the time was because I was sort of thinking back on this and and using my imagination to take you to a, a different place um, where Jerry Brown is casting a shadow over California politics. Dianne Feinstein's cronyism uh, rankled the hard left wingers, and San Francisco's waste management failures meant that garbage was piling up in the streets. Uh, police were also notoriously unaccountable to citizens, and a housing crisis gripped the city. 
Um, but, sound familiar? Absolutely. <laughs> this I, I believe there would be California Uralis would now be about tech bros. But um, yeah, but yeah. it's like it's it's kind of shocking that when you read through the list of uh, of campaign issues that um, oh, that were sort more. of the that were square in the crosshairs. Or sorry to use that particular turn of phrase in the context, but um, but you know that were really front and center in this campaign. Uh, yeah, forty years ago, they changed. Yeah, there was a, there's a human feces problem in San Francisco at the moment. Um, that crisis proportions. I mean, the only we difference the human is feces solution. Only difference is that the uh, the food scene has fully matured and that the uh, Mitchell brothers have been kicked out of the tenderloin. That's about your. <laughs> yeah, that's about the size of it. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is. Um, Kind of funny, and and I I think uh, I have to say that I'm I I was sort of smiling to myself as I was imagining you know a, a young and and um, very politically agile uh, Feinstein um, dealing with uh, with this sort of upshot candidate who you know came out of nowhere um, who she for instance um, sort of you know uh, very made a big public display of the fact that she was going to clean up. Um, the uh, the tenderloin is that right? Um, yeah, and uh, and so she gets out there with a broom and she's sweeping up, and so Jello Biafra, um, you know, throw, like turns it on its head and and starts vacuuming the sidewalks outside That's her home. It's awesome. It's it's pretty funny stuff. I mean, but you know that's who she'd be. I mean, anytime you anytime you need a, a moment of levity, just remember that she rose to power by beating Jello Biafra in a mayoral <laughs> race. One yeah. thing, I, one thing, in all seriousness, I will do is, and I think I've plugged this before, probably every time San Francisco comes up. But there is a, a book called "Season of the Witch" by David Talbot, which is um, the, a history of San Francisco from '67 to '87, which is phenomenal. It reads like a novel. It's, um, you know, I've always, since I read it about five or six years ago, I've been um, sort of steering anybody I could toward it. It's um, it really captures the city at that time, which is a it was a really demented and fucked up place, uh, much like New York at the same time, which was you know as catastrophic and and you know post apocalyptic as uh, um, it ever was, and and you know people have a, a sort of romantic recollection of both, but they were both pretty gnarly places at the point. Yeah, it sort of seems like the hippie movement had sort of burned itself out and was a little druggier and a little bit less idealistic than it was, uh, uh, you know, a decade earlier at that point. It's it's like, it's what happened to the hippies when they weren't able to, you know... Sustain. Weaponize <laughs> love and, and conquer, you know, this, that, and the other thing. It was really like Ronald Reagan was put in the president's office and, um, you know, it, it hadn't worked out. Um, plus, of course, you have a huge influx of uh of vietnam veterans who were um moving back and many of whom uh who were were fairly troubled in a time when um i think post-traumatic stress wasn't really talked about san francisco is a pretty reasonably pleasant place to live um you know from a temperature standpoint so there were there were all sorts of factors that were sort of meeting in one place but yeah it definitely uh definitely has a, a you know a had a difficult time, I think, for... It was a dark, um, dark 20 years there. Yeah. Um, anyway. So, I mean, should we uh, take a break and, and um, let's uh, throw on some California Uber Alice and come back and talk about the album, Fresh Fruits, Variety that. Vegetables? That'd be awesome. Thanks.
to Brother, 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 and today we are talking about Dead Kennedys, the DKs. Um, you know, I, I think we, we wanted to dive in and, and sort of do a, a segment here on, on their, you know, real landmark debut album, Fresh Fruits for Rotting Vegetables, which came out in 1980. Um, and I think from the moment I first saw this thing, it's like you don't know exactly what you're looking at. Um, the cover of Fresh Fruits is uh, is actually from White Night, which was the night that that um, which was the riots that occurred after Dan uh, White's Van acquittal. White, yeah, Van White was um, exactly was uh, was let off the hook, and he of course had had assassinated um, the mayor elect and and uh, uh, in a pretty vicious hate crime, and and of course you know San Francisco was up in flames frankly i mean they were torching um cars in front of uh in front of city hall and one of the photos um of uh, of those burned out vehicles was um was actually used as as their cover uh and you know it really was um it's it's a pretty startling first image i think um well, especially it has when you sort of authenticity to it like this is this feels very real especially when you think of how arresting the name dead kennedys was in 1979 1980 um, and still is really. I mean, it's still one of the more, uh, um, you know, sort of controversial names. I don't, you know, I'm not sure that the, you know, it doesn't really matter what the intention is. The, the, the effect is jarring. Um, I think you know, the intention was at least in part to have, to be jarring. I mean, there's no, oh, you, know, you don't, you don't, you don't come up with that name by accident. Um, I think you're, you're right. I hadn't really considered, um, the sort of secondary, I mean, in their case, it might have been their primary intention, but I, I hadn't sort of realized that what they were actually saying was, um, you know, in, in a sort of yet another example of, of how they can be very tongue in cheek. Um, you know, this is this is the the idealism and the sort of uh, of the Kennedy era has, has died with the, you know with the family. Th- but that, um, that of course sounds revisionist like, to me. <laughs> yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Um, and on top of that, they were dropping like flies, so it's hard not to at least see a double meaning there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, and I, this I was think, an election year when Teddy was running for president. Oh yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I just I would call out a couple of uh, a couple of highlights here. I mean, the biggest song off this album um, is "Holiday in Cambodia," and that that does actually sort of. Um, Resonate the world over. I guess it's, uh, it's, it's played in England. It's played. You know, it, it makes it around, um, and uh, it is it is an incredibly tense, funny, weird song. Yeah, that even uh, you know I'd never thought of it before, but um, during the interview, during that you know uh, doc that you recommended, uh, East Bay Ray refers to it as Wagnerian, and on more than one occasion, I mean there. You know, they, in some ways, they have that that sort of same. Klaus Flora sort of 
provides that same, you know, uh, lead bass ish kind of thing that that Peter Hook does for Joy Division New Order. Also, John Doe did with X, where Billy Zoom just kind of rides surf guitar over. And I always thought of East Bay Ray as kind of a surf guitar player, but it, there is something very Wagnerian about the way he plays. It's very dark. Yes, and there is so much attention paid to... And one of the things that's really striking about this this album to me is, and partly I think why I, I, I sort of always found it difficult to, to fix it to any one particular time and place, um, is the fact that the rhythm section is recorded so... Um, sort of robustly uh, for, for a punk album of that era. Um, it really, like, the the depth that those two instruments have, the, the drums and, and bass, um, are just immediately sort of striking. It's, it's like it's this sort of, um, you know, chest pounding, or like a heart pounding in your chest kind of sort of primal um, uh, feel to it. And it just, it doesn't have the same, it doesn't suffer from the same sort of thinness that I think um, a lot of recordings uh, at, at that time did. Well, I think, um, you know, two things. One is they were reasonably good players. They're quite good players. But also uh, East Bay Ray, like his fellow Ray uh, from Southern California, Ray Manzarek, who um, produced the first several uh, X records, knew his way around a recording studio, actually knew how to record. So I think that, you know, took care of a lot of it. I think East Bay Ray, if I'm not mistaken, you know, is one of those guys that very seems very mechanically inclined and knows, you know, the sort of science behind it rather than just guessing at it. Yeah, and I think he has, in fact, made his career, or much of his career, doing exactly that, um, yes. and working in a, in a studio. So, um, But, you know, this is sort of the quintessential, um, uh, to, to borrow someone else's line, you know, cramming 10 pounds of sound into a 5-pound disc. Yes. Um, it's, uh, you know, I, I think the, the second thing that's really sort of striking about this is, like, it just, it, it is engaging... Um, the lyrics are engaging at a higher level than uh, a lot of the sort of teenage rage um, uh, sort of topically, uh, you know, topical, like, form or of, of most... Um, Angsty. Yeah, exactly. Of Emotional. Punk from from this particular time. It's They, they were really talking about something a little bit more... Serious and Heady, as we yeah, were discussing earlier, rather than taking it to that first step, which is um, you know mocking Reagan or something, it's it's digging deeper than that um, and digging deeper than just whinging about politicians or about cops, and it's sort of uh, it's it's critiquing the whiny college kid who picks up their record maybe um, and is uh, nevertheless intent on becoming a sort of consumerist capitalist sucker. Um, you know, kiss ass, well, you bitch, but your boss, but your boss gets richer off you. Um, it's it's, uh, it's you a know, phenomenal, <laughs> dense song. I mean, when you first hear, you know, when I, you know, first of all, you know, I, I was born and at that, you know, I was at that age where, you know, I sort of my earliest memories are just after Vietnam had ended, um, Nixon had resigned, and and um, you know, so you know, Vietnam was. Uh, spoken about rather um, frequently, but, you know, the intricacies are lost on a kid. Um, you know, so it probably wasn't until I started listening to Fresh Fruit for Riding Vegetables when I was, you know, 12, 13, that I even found out who Pol Pot was and then looked up who Pol Pot was and learned who Pol Pot was. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I, so I'm thinking, you know, for a long time, this is a, you know, anti-Vietnam, anti-Cambodian bombing song. Little did I know, it's mostly a, a rip on know-it-all college students who, um, you know, sort of parade their <laughs> politics uh, in such a, you know, in such a flagrant way. It's, it's, it was pretty remarkable insight for, uh, you know, for a guy who himself was probably 21 when it was written. Yeah, um, I think that's absolutely right. It, it's it is, and it is the extra step, the extra um, character uh, study. Yeah, that that just that allows this to be sort of um, that allows me still to engage with it and dig into it and appreciate it for for what it is at this uh, at this juncture in my life. Um, in addition to you know as much as I did on a different level when I was sixteen. Um, I, I would say you know another good example of this, by the way, is uh, is kill the poor. Um, another highlight off this album, which I like, I was thinking about this in, in the context of um, uh, Jonathan Swift's um, "A Modest Proposal," right? So this is like a, a sort of legendary tome of, of like English satire, um, which is a, a really deep, rich literary tradition um, in the English language. Uh, you know, and a modest proposal, the modest proposal in question, um, which was said to be a pure uh, a cure for, for Irish poverty, um, was to sell children to the rich as food. Um, and uh, likewise, you know, Kill the Poor invites us to kill the poor with neutron bombs to solve the problem of poverty without damaging property values. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, that's, that's fucked. But, like, you know, it's a really great... Um, uh, a sort of twisted look at, at um, you know, ha- how we solve sort of big public policy problems, and and uh, and, and you know that nothing's off the table for, for these uh, for, for these guys, which I think is yet another you know very sophisticated look. Also very prescient in the sense that you know he he's one of the first people that call out celebrities for how you know for these sort of you know well-meaning, well-intentioned, uh, but all you know. Frequently self-serving kind of uh, political stances. Um, you know, he makes mention of Jane Fonda on this, and and uh, it and, and not in the way that you know he was joining her her brigade, but in the sense that you know it was sort of a again a, a, a finger in the chest of the of the sort of puffed and um, self-important. So aside from that, I mean, I, I would say obviously California Uberellis is is uh, you know a major highlight. Um, I, actually, I think the first song that I really love by this band actually, and the first one that grabbed me um, was uh, "Let's Lynch the Land," yeah, which I really, is kind of a funnier uh, sort of halftime um, edition. It's one of their slower songs actually. It's not very slow, but it's also um, I mean it might as well be on Nuggets. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's it's it has that sort of uh, like garage rock swagger um, that uh, that you don't typically always get in, in punk rock um, but it just it's just such a like vicious chorus mm-hmm. um, you know and again sort of uh, about it, you know talking about sort of the real life kitchen table um, economics that uh, that af- affected them and their friends um, more than anything else what are some of your other favorites Oh, I mean, it, the whole thing. I, but I, I do remember seeing a um, again. Now I can't remember whether it was a drama or a documentary, so I'm embarrassed. But um, you know, it was one of these things where somebody was, you know, one of these, you know, sort of um, um, militia types was teaching their little kid. You know, these skinhead militia guys was teaching his kid how to sing "Kill the Poor." 
in the back of the in the you know the back of a pickup truck or something. And it was you know it's just a really grisly thought that this person completely misunderstood what the you know missed the message and was you know was thinking that it was you know a sort of uh, you know, a call to arms rather than a call to arms. Uh, it's very disturbing stuff. And I, you can see where a lot of it was misconstrued. Um, and when there's the possibly apocryphal story that the uh, that a Portuguese, that a nationalist oh, yeah. party in Portugal um, actually, like, you know, started using this at, like, rallies and stuff because they, uh, they, they thought that they were like, yeah, we love this anthem. Like, mm-hmm. that's exactly what we're saying. They, they get Bingo. it. Bingo. <laughs> like, oh, oh, actually, well, the next thing you know, the yeah. Nazis are going are gonna to co-opt Uber allies for themselves. Um, yeah, exactly. But it was, it, I, it, I still, to this day, like, I wonder where, yeah, I have a hard time understanding where its place in the world is because I love it. I think it's one of the most, I think it's one of the great albums. I, I think I, or very early on in our podcasting days, uh, um, I think I may have uh, designated it one of my comfort food albums, which is means that I one of those ones I go back to periodically and just listen to top to bottom. Um, you know when I when I feel like being comfortable, um, it's something yeah, I, I went know. to sleep to in school. You know when I was in, in, <laughs> in high school and co- no in high school and college I would I would play it to go to sleep because it had a, it has a very very uh, um, consistent uh, beat and and sound to it. Um, but see, it, kids, Wyndham is testament that that won't fuck you up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but it, it, I, I don't see it listed. I mean, I see it. I understand it's sort of regarded as one of the great punk records, but I don't ever see it sort of regarded as one of the greatest albums of the 80s or, um, well, you know, you in know, that sort of breath. It's funny. Hold that thought for one second. Let's take a quick break, um, listen to another song, and uh, and then we'll come back because I, I want to talk specifically about sort of the fallout but also the legacy because I, I really I, – I've got a couple of interesting takes on that. Great. Efficiency and progress is ours once more. Welcome back to Brother, 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 where today we are talking about the dead Kennedys, the DKs. Um, I think, uh, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on the on the sort of fallout here. Um, acrimonious breakups I don't think are ever quite as fun or interesting in punk, and I think maybe that's because, uh, you know, there's sort of a, a long shadow um, cast by... by Nihilism, which sort of makes it all seem inevitable, and stakes um, like, are low, and like yeah, but exactly, people reform in other groups. Um, it's you know as long as they remain committed to uh, committed to the the movement or the the um, you know the, the sort of uh, 
the genre, right? The the club. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think. In this case, it is worth noting um, that as much as we've talked about their authenticity uh, and their sort of sophisticated politics, um, this band did break up over a royalties dispute, um, which is kind of like saying Karl Marx died broke after blowing all his cash on lottery tickets. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it just, it's like the fact that they couldn't sort out the finances really didn't, it's just like, it's such a damaging blow to their uh uh, to their credibility. Um, yeah, I wasn't the, sure if the they broke years. up over that, but I knew that that you know that certainly there were lawsuits that, that followed their breakup. It's I don't know that people could. I mean, as much as I laud Jella Biafra as a frontman and a singer and a lyricist, I don't know how much time I'd like to spend in a room with the guy. So let alone a, let alone a van. <laughs> exactly. So um, yeah. you know it's understandable. I mean, these things have a tendency to flame out. I mean, there aren't a whole lot of. Um, you know, there aren't a whole lot of bands that explode out like this that, that have uh, shoveling. And frankly, you know, if Jer was on this pod, he would tell you that he probably grew up listening to the other albums as much as Fresh Fruit. And, you know, that to me doesn't make sense. Like the rest of the albums basically didn't exist as far as I was concerned. There's some, there's, you know, there's a couple good moments, but, it, you know, it was really this one, you know, sort of uh, seminal blast out of the, uh, you know, out of the shoot that, that really um, it was, you know, world-altering. No, I think that's that's absolutely right. And I would say that, that coming at it, um, as I did, you know, with the benefit of, of complete hindsight um, and really experiencing them all, you know, uh, all their albums at pretty much the same time and, and getting a chance to listen to, um, you know, the next four installations, uh, I, there's just nothing that really compares to it. There are a few very memorable songs um, on uh, on those, including Nazi Punk's Fuck Off, but um, but nothing uh, nothing that is just as as um, as rock solid uh, a a you know eighteen track punk album. Um, and you know I think the to the legacy issue um, that you you raised a couple minutes ago I think is an interesting one because it's you know just as they came out of a strange place with no um, with no obvious uh, sort of genealogy um, that makes sense uh, they I you know it's it's hard to pinpoint exactly who their um, uh, who their sort of progeny or, or followers are um, yeah I, think I don't get in, it either in in it, the political piece of it, the, just the fact that they were they were radical um, in their politics, and it was intelligently communicated through their songs. I think that the, the sort of political conceit is is actually captured in a handful of bands, but guys like Rage Against the Machine, I think. Um, but but like Rage Against the Machine has no sense of humor. I'd say um, Run the Jewels might be the closest. Run the Jewels has I, I think is a very very good like spiritual. Uh, you know, um, kindred, you know, kindred spirit uh, to to DK, yeah, for sure. Um, I just it's that it's that combination of like irreverence and like piercing political commentary that just doesn't. It's so hard to do well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even like a band like NWA, who was so in your face, was you know there was it 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 there were there was funny stuff, but it could be mis it could be construed as dead serious too. I mean. Um, and it, and it probably is and was. Um, yeah, there really aren't a whole lot. And certainly, you know, within their genre of punk rock, there aren't, you know, there are bands that were jokey and there are bands that are, you know, silly and, and 
irreverent, but there weren't any that had the same sort of um, intellectual spine to back up uh, what they were doing and, and the sort of sense of satire um, that I can think of anyway. Yeah, um, there was like, pa- and, and the way that, you know, rock evolved and it's sort of in the mainstream, I think, and um, the U.S. and U.K. So, like, uh, take take the pairing of, you know, the, the two sort of giant English bands of the 90s, right? Like Oasis and Radiohead. It's like you have one that sort of leans serious and a little bit more political, and then you have another that leans jokey and fun. Um, well, I mean, you know. Fun. They're, yeah. Big, I mean, broad. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Actually, I was going to go with two other bands, which is Pulp and, and Blur, who I do think actually get the right. sort of satirical piece right, but don't have the, the venom. Yeah, exactly. But don't have the, the don't have quite the the um, no. That's that's exactly uh, the word to use. Um, and so I guess my question is: Are they the American Clash? So the Clash weren't funny. They were kind of funny. Rock they, the Casper. Yeah, no. I mean that's kind of, that's a pretty funny. Uh, but you know, I mean they were they were pretty they were they were. And as I listen, you know, and I'm going to give cheek more than funny, I guess. There are moments, but again, it's more like Rage Against... I mean, I guess Rage Against the Machine is, like, zero funny. But yeah. um, <laughs> no fun at all. It was uh, literally, like, uh, yeah. No, that is as much fun as actually just being in class at Harvard with Tom Morello. Yeah, with... Uh, um, yeah. Uh, but I think, um, you know, in this case, there's there's nobody who really mixed it up in that way. I mean, I, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to chart, and it's a, you know, one-of-a-kind kind of thing. To the point where I think, like I said, even the the subsequent albums that came out after Fresh Fruit, you know, sort of lacked the you know the sort of sophistication or the um, you know the sort of intellectualism that was on Fresh Fruit. Um, you know, they're they're much more sort of blunt instrument type of uh, takes on on uh, things that are outrageous in the world. They're not it's, as clever and, and um, multi layered. You know, I was I was just thinking um, a, a second ago that that I, oh, I was going to make the very bad joke that come on, American Idiot by Green Day is obviously the uh, the answer to this question. Um, mm-hmm. But I realized that's that's not even funny uh, as as a joke. <laughs> like yeah. it just it's it sucks. Um, it sucks, and I don't want to talk about it. And I'm sorry I mentioned it. Um, but uh, you know, I, I do think that there were like it was clear that the sort of humor parody aspects of um, the DKs could have were, were carried on in a band like Sublime um, who I actually I like and think uh, were cut short um, before yeah, they could they could really do something funny um, they weren't that politically minded but they sort of are the you know they add a little bit of that like um, like fresh mocking sense of humor mm-hmm. uh, that's obviously there yeah there's, there's like you said there's elements of it sprinkled everywhere but no, none of them uh, bring it together like uh, you know like um, the Kennedys did well, and, so and also sh- nobody will ever have a better name frankly yeah no I think that's right um, well with that uh, I think let's let's wrap the discussion but um, take a quick break listen to one more song and um, let's come back and throw songs on the playlist excellent
Which is uh, with a, sh- a surprising pop quiz for Christian. Uh, what are you listening to? So this weekend, um, I threw on a pair of, uh, of documentaries, um, a, sort of a, an antidote. I was hoping um, to the week I spent immersed in um, documentaries about uh, child sexual abuse, um, which was, of course, our the subject of our last. Pod um, leaving Neverland, and then of course uh, all of the drama around R. Kelly's, I guess, a subsequent arrest again for this time not paying child support, um, but also his Gail King interview, and um, so in any event, I was looking for a slight change of pace. Uh, I threw on Free Solo on Saturday evening, um, which is uh, a really fabulous um, documentary made by um, Jimmy Chin and and. Following Alex Honnold, who's uh, a, a mountain climber, uh, obviously this one best documentary um, feature at the Oscars this year, so it will be familiar to many of you. It's on; uh, it's available in National Geographic, actually. So if you uh, have on demand, you probably have this. Not that you would have necessarily ever looked at the National Geographic on demand. Um, sweet, I believe before. it hit Hulu today. As well. Oh, did it? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Um, it's it's a really terrific. It's a very well made documentary, I thought, um, and does a great job at sort of you know drawing you in um, pretty quickly and uh, and getting you um, uh, getting you interested in the actual the activity of climbing and sort of the danger involved. Um, but it it also you know explains to you sort of the the complexity of of a climb like this and really you know what moves are involved and what the planning process looks like but um not in a way that's overly tedious um you need only not have as, asked I yes um and then uh ultimately digs into his psychology and sort of the why he isn't afraid of this and base and and really you know tugging at the viewer, I think beneath all of this is, is the question, um, you know, why does this guy want to die? Uh, <laughs> I don't, you, you've seen it as well, right? I have seen it twice in the last five days. So yeah, I, I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by how they shot it, everything about it. Um, it's, it, you know, I find it really compelling and, you know, I realize it's, it's, you know, there, there's a little bit of story, but the story, uh, is, you know, secondary obviously to the feet of uh of climbing and um you know what what compels this guy it's just bizarre and um you know the the i had seen uh meru uh the um the 
prior uh, climbing documentary that this team made. And, um, you know, that that is very much, uh, I, I highly recommend that too, but I also highly recommend you see Meru before you see Free Solo because you can almost see the progression and how, how these things are made. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, it was definitely a, a sort of logistical challenge, I think. And, and of course, um, pretty much everybody who Alex Honnold, this is like one of the, um, kind of amusing, um, uh, motifs in, in the flick is the, Alex Honnold basically um, remarking that uh, you're not really a climber um, is actually a pretty pretty decent sized compliment, frankly, because anybody he says that about is uh, usually following him up a mountainside. It's still um, alive as well. I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Unlike the real climbers. Well, so yeah, unlike unlike the true climbers, exactly. Um, and you get the feeling that uh, you know there there was a great line from from his climbing partner um, at one point, which was, "Yeah, anybody who's made free soloing, which is the act of climbing without ropes, um, a big part of their life is is dead." Um, and I was like, "Wow!" And you probably know everyone who uh, who's made that a pretty big part of their life. So um, that is a pretty pretty serious indictment and and hopefully gives uh gives our friend alex uh, something to think about um as a thinking that that was going to be the thing that, that sort of helped me calm down um i subsequently threw on won't you be my neighbor uh, the <laughs> mr rogers documentary and i have to say that was absolutely delightful i have i enjoyed watching that so much um he was just a, a wonderful man uh just not a you know, in an age where it's very easy to be cynical, I think, particularly about people who, um, you know, spend their careers around children, for instance. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but particularly after, like, a week of R. Kelly and Michael Jackson um, trauma, I think it was really nice to see somebody who sort of understands the importance of early childhood development and, like, and really made that, like, he was so ahead of the curve as, as far as the rest of, you know, uh, psychology is concerned. He was, he was a, he's an important figure in, in sort of um, the, I think, me- maturation of, um, of an entire field of study in the United States, as well as just a guy who everybody grows up with. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed both of those, so. <coughs> what are Thank you listening you. to? I've been listening to, and um, I don't know if I should recommend this yet because it's coming out in installments which has uh, suddenly become a pet peeve uh, who knew after uh, you know 48 years of consuming things uh, that come out weekly, monthly, annually um, suddenly I'm pissed off anytime I have to wait for anything um, but Stay Free which is the uh, uh, pod about the history of The Clash uh, hosted by Chuck D on Spotify it is um, you know as much as uh, People are, are resistant to uh, Spotify this week. Uh, before you cut that cord, uh, listen to this podcast. Chuck D does a great job, and, and you really you really see the sort of confluence of what he was doing with what Joe Strummer and Mick Jones, Paul Simonon, and uh, Topper and uh, Chimes were doing back in the day. So he's obviously a, a reverent fan, and um, I have to say, as many books and, and articles and Movies and whatever I've devoured about The Clash, who happen to be one of my absolute favorite bands, <clears throat> there are still little bits and pieces in this that I didn't know. And additionally, there is, it's told by Chuck D. So there you go. Excellent. Well, do you want to add a song to the playlist? I do. I'm going to, uh, I'm actually going to call an audible and go with uh, today's 
lesson, which is uh, I'm going to go with Holiday in Cambodia by the Dead Kennedys. Thank God. That's such a great song. And I, I wasn't going to, but if you didn't, I was going to have to. So um, so there we go. Uh, excellent addition. Um, I am going to mark uh, 2019 is, is a big year for, for TLC. Um, 25 years since Crazy Sexy Cool came out and 20 years since Fan Mail. Um, I've actually got to those in reverse order myself, but... Um, uh, Creep is going on the playlist. It's a fucking awesome song, um, and it's it's uh, just a, a longtime favorite of mine, um, and uh, it, it should be on there. Mm-hmm. I agree. Right. I'm with you. Um, well, great. Thank you so much, and uh, uh, we'll talk to you very soon. Actually, coming up, uh, we have uh, an announcement this week, so uh, stay tuned, and uh, we'll be, uh, you, know, you know what time of year it is, so... I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.